0: This is episode number 395 with Emma Greed of The Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating
1: fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 Now, the Founder Podcast, even the greatest entrepreneurs had help.
0: and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. Today's guest is Emma and she's the CEO and co-founder of Good American and the founding partner of shapewear brand Skims and also her latest venture, Safely, with Chris Jenner. So she has a ton of experience when it comes to e-commerce brands and building incredible brands. Now, during the course of our interview, Emma's really going to share her best advice for early stage founders, including her decision-making framework. Plus, how she leveraged authenticity to forge relationships that contribute to her success. So, if you're ready to learn from a powerhouse founder whose talent backed businesses have taken the world by storm, then this is for you. Please welcome to this podcast Emma Greed. You will not be disappointed. All right, now let's jump to the show. Emma, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. The first question that I ask everyone that comes on is how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today?
1: Goodness me, what, what a start. It's a long story. <laughs> I'm like, where should I even begin? So, you know, it's interesting because I actually started my career working in fashion. I was a show producer and then I kind of graduated into this kind of odd a job of procuring sponsors for fashion designers and that I turned into an agency which was my first ever business that I started when I was about 24 or 25. Um, I did that for 10 years and that was you know an agency that was rooted in entertainment-based marketing and then you know partnerships and collaborations and then much later kind of influencer-based marketing and then I was lucky enough to, um, to sell that company. It was acquired by IPG Media and, you know, at the end of that company, I'd started to put together a lot of um, talent-based equity participation deals. And, you know, I kind of thought, oh, I should do one of those for myself. And that's where I found myself, you know, starting my first, you know, apparel-based business, which I did with Chloe um, Kardashian. Um, and then um, and then I launched Skims with Kim Kardashian. And so, you know, I also have another company safely with Chris. And so I kind of found myself, you know, really taking the last, you know, 15 years of my experience in really fundamentally understanding talent-based marketing and turning those into brands all by themselves. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's how I found myself here.
0: Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. And look, we want to talk more about that but I want to go back in time a little bit like early days, Emma, London, what did the vision board look like? Um, What, you know, what, what did the future look like for you? Did you, yeah. Did you you dream all this up?
1: Yeah. You know what? I think I honestly did. I was, a very very focused kid like I always knew I wanted to work in and around fashion and I think I spent the early part of my career really trying to get closer and closer to creative people because that's where I felt I thrived I'm not you know, a a kind of true creative person in myself, but I really understand creativity. And I thought that my strength was when I could bring my, you know, business acumen and work with a creative person to kind of, you know, empower their vision. And so that's where it all, it all really started. I, um, I definitely, you know, was somebody that had kind of said, you know, not that I want to be an entrepreneur or really have my own business, but that I want to work around creative people. And I love the world of fashion, but I really loved it as a means of escapism from where i come from you know i grew up in east london which is you know not that nice or it wasn't when i was little Um, and i think that fashion for me was such an alluring industry because it felt really far from what i knew it felt glamorous and i just loved the clothes and the idea of being in paris and i definitely like envisaged myself being part of that world like being at the shows and you know wearing the most beautiful clothes and being able to afford anything that I want and um, I was pretty pretty good at knowing what I didn't do well you know I never tried to be a fashion designer because I thought I'm probably not going to be very good at being a fashion designer Um, and so I've, I've been pretty focused on finding where my unique talents are I'm really hone in on those.
0: You know, going back as well, your your entertainment marketing days, um, you know, you found yourself as as the CEO of ITB Worldwide. Can you kind of tell us how did you get there and what did you learn from that experience?
1: Well, you know, the good thing is I started that company, so it was easy to be the CEO because in the beginning I was the CEO of Not Very Much. Um, And that agency grew to be really big. You know, we had offices in three countries, in London, New York, and L.A., Um, It was acquired by the best in class agency in that space. And so it was a really kind of proud moment for me, but it wasn't always like that. When I started the business, you know, I, you know, took the new business meetings, I wrote the pitches, I delivered the work. I then sent out the invoice at 10 o'clock at night. You know, it was really me doing everything. But again, I was pretty good. I found myself with a really good knack for hiring people. And so I was able to kind of park my ego Hire people and pay them more than I was even paying myself in the beginning. Um, and I'm—I've always been quite good at attracting talent. You know, I could paint the vision, show you the strategy, tell you where I thought the company was going, and as a result of that, bring on the best possible talent. And I always knew—I knew very early on that that was the key to the agency being successful. Right, that you are only ever going to be as good as the last piece of work you did, and you needed incredible talent that knew more than I did, that had more experience than I did to bring that to life. And so um, I think that I I knew very early on the power of good people and hiring really, really well.
0: So can we explore that a little more? Because, yeah, businesses are built by people. People don't talk about this enough. Uh, mm-hmm. Like what what key tips do you have around hiring well? Any advice for, you know, our audience?
1: Yeah, you know, I do. I have a lot of advice. I think the first thing is, you know, And and there's so much talk about this in business at large, but, you know, without knowing as a black female CEO, I always hired for diversity and not because that was something that, you know, was part of a charter because there was no charter when I first started. It was just what I felt comfortable with and what I knew to be true, that if there were a group of people around the table that all had different opinions, we'd do the best work for our clients. And that just worked. And so I don't think of, um, you know, I, I never kind of took a beat and wrote it down anywhere. But in hindsight, what I created was an agency that could service our clients the best because we had all of these different opinions and somebody looking out from a different perspective when we were doing incredible campaigns. You'd have somebody say, do you know what, guys, have you thought about this and how that could be interpreted or how it would to this specific segment of customers. Um, And that was something that I knew was a superpower early on because we were always avoiding mistakes for our, our clients, right? You'd have like, you know, a dude with a remit and it was always, you know, like some guy in a company and he'd be like, this is what we should do. And we would be like, well, actually, <laughs> there might be a better way to do that. And so that—that um, that is a huge tip that I think that, you know, we all know that as our organisations and corporate America at large has a responsibility um, in and around, you know, creating a more equitable work environment. And, and I do think it's important that organisations have, you know, a DE&I charter and that we think about measuring how we're getting better but at the end of the day, it's really, really simple. Just hire more black and brown people in your organization. Like start there, right? It's super, super simple. Um, and I think if we could basically just like boil that down and how do I do that in my organization? I make sure that for every single position we have available, you have to come to me or to your manager with a diverse range of candidates. It's just that simple. So there's no conversation about, am I hiring for a diversity or am I hiring the best person? It's like, you're doing both <laughs> that's just it you know and i think if you put those things in uh you know right at the forefront of your organization you're going to be really ahead of the pack
0: yeah i see and when it comes to kind of uh traits for identifying talent do you have anything there because you also have a skill around like or a superpower around identifying incredible talent to work with as well like uh, internal and external so do you, do you how did you harness that like and, and did you develop that superpower well you
1: know I think the first thing is having an organization that people want to work in right I think that a, the best talent have choices and so your organization really has to be the best choice for them and so you know if you have a company that's got Uh, you know, that that is rooted in purpose and has a very specific mission, you are ultimately going to attract the right people for that organisation. And, you know, when you create the conditions for people to be really successful there, you know, like, I'm really honest, I think, like, everybody wants to make money everybody wants to get ahead everybody wants to you know have an impact and so i make it very clear and i create the conditions for that to be a reality for anyone who comes into our organization and regardless of level you know it's again if i think if you are good at you know building companies and setting strategy and creating a vision you kind of have to boil that down for your hr strategy because people in and themselves are like little mini businesses, right? They come into your organisation and they want to see that for themselves. Where am I going? What's the path for me? What does it look like if I'm here for three years? And so I try to just, you know, create an environment where that's really clear for people. But also, you know, you, you just attract the right people when you're doing like cool stuff that people want to be a part of. Love to switch gears
0: and talk about kind of, your roster of business partners, like it's, it's really impressive. You know, you've got uh, Safely with, with Chris, you've got Good American with uh, Chloe. you've got uh, your founding partner at Skims. Like, uh, you know, how did that relationship with the, the Kardashians' gender family develop?
1: You know it came from the old days of the entertainment marketing world because such a huge part of my job was always you know coming to Hollywood because I was based in London at that time mm-hmm. and meeting agents managers publicists business managers and developing relationships with them and so at that time when you go back to like 2012 2013 Kris Jenner was a manager you know she's a manager of this you know incredible family but really back then it was Kim and um and she was another manager that I would have lunch with and me and you know Chris is an incredible manager she would always again like paint the picture of like where are they going what are they doing what are the dreams what are the aspirations and so I had a really clear idea coming out of ITB and having worked on so many you know um talent equity participation agreements I was like oh I know that this is something that will be interesting to Christiana because she had graduated her family past that point of like just doing endorsements. Mm-hmm. And so when I had the idea around Good American, I was like, Chloe Kardashian is just gonna get this. She's gonna understand. And I know that she's looking for something where she can be more involved than just kind of coming in and shooting for a day. And so I pitched it to Chris first um, as like, you know, a manager contact. I was like, Hey, I've got something for one of your clients. Your client is your daughter, but you know, and she was like, cool. Then, um, you know, you should, she said, when you're next in LA, you should pitch it directly to Chloe. And I was like, well, funny, you should say that I'm coming next week. I wasn't, of course. Um, I flew specifically for the meeting, but you know, it was, uh, it was those early, those early hustle days. And, you know, I think so much of business, even now, right. It's about building relationships. And having and listening, you know, really understanding like what there is a need for, what people want to do. And I was, you know, lucky that I could make the stars align um, there with Good American because I knew I had an incredible uh, product, I knew I had an incredible idea. And that there was a real addressable market, and it just so happened that when I pitched the idea to Chloe, she was the girl, she was the customer, she was the woman that I was trying to reach out to, and she had been in this position for a long time, you know, being around her sisters, going onto sets to shoot various different things, and there being rails of clothes for the girls because they were like more regular size, if you like, and um, and not so much for her. And so she immediately understood the problem and sympathized with the customer. And that was really the, the genesis of good American came from, you know, me having an idea and a soul for a product that would work for a curvier body shape and Chloe fundamentally understanding the problem and being that customer. And when you put those two things together, it kind of made for this like magical, you know, magical launch really.
0: Yeah. Incredible. And, you know, because you, you you know the family so well, you kind of have a, a little bit of an inside look into things. Like, what do you think is the key to, I guess, it's, it's an incredible empire. Like, what's the key to their staying power from your perspective?
1: I think it's really honesty and relatability, right? We've seen that family go through ups and downs and the good and the bad, and um, they are who they are throughout it. And so I think that we all can see some, part of ourselves in the trials and tribulations that have played out so famously on that show Um, but I do think at the end of it it comes down to the fact that when you watch it you know you they're the same people right they're the same people they were in the beginning and um, they've been very very true and open and honest with their audience and I think that you know, in in these times when things are so polished and so heavily marketed, and even when brands talk about authenticity all the time, you know, it isn't always coming from that place. That actually, the Kardashians remain just a breath of fresh air because they are just what they are and they're unapologetic about it. And I think the customer just sees that and smells it and they've been able to build really significant businesses in their likeness. But you know, that makes sense. You know, they use those products.
0: Okay, so... Let's talk about Good American. I'd love to explore that a little more. Like, what did the early days ideation process look like? Um, were you Did you have the product, prototype, everything there before you pitched Chloe? Or, yeah, what, what did the early days look like?
1: You know, it's so funny. So for the first, like, 10 years of my career, I'd been part of the fashion industry. And I definitely think that all of that work kind of culminated in me having a feeling about how black and brown women, how plus size women were depicted in fashion. And I'd often be asked by a client, you know, can you, can you, you know, cast a diverse group of women, you know, someone that worked for the Asia market, someone that worked for the South American market. And I'd be like, but this is nothing to do with with what the company are actually doing. This is just like a marketing ploy to make people feel like something is, you know, in this company that really isn't there. And I just thought it'd be a good idea to actually like create a company that was really like that, where the people that are inside it were really diverse, where you were doing something that actually catered for a different body type. And, you know, I'm somebody, you know, who gets, does a lot of research, looks at a lot of data. And when I did, I was like, wow, there are some really big stats that led me to think that this was going to be an incredible opportunity and when you look I think it's 68% of women in this country are what would be considered plus size but there are so few brands that cater to them and then you know coming from the fashion industry which is an industry that is all about the way that it looks I knew that doing something that would be more inclusive was the right way to go because i didn't want any of the stigma that comes with just being for one group of people i was like why don't we just make fashion and make it in all the sizes. And when I started doing that, there was just such a lot of pushback. You know, you'd speak to a manufacturer, they said it wasn't possible. You'd speak to a designer, they only could do, you know, Missy sizes, they didn't know how to work in plus. And so it was interesting because rather than that putting me off, I was like, oh, I'm just going to figure this out. Like, there has to be a way that you can make this work. And the more I went around and the more conversations I had, the more, um, I guess, like... <laughs> the more I was like, this is going to be really difficult. This is really not going to be easy. Um, and eventually I got a prototype of like one pair of skinny jeans that was cut with all the curve in the, you know, the pattern had all the curve in the hip. And I just started asking people to try it on. And I knew right away that it was just Going to work better for their bodies because the feedback I was getting was so immediate. You know, so many people were like, Oh, can I keep this pair of jeans? When are you launching them? This is amazing. This is, I've never felt like this. I haven't worn jeans for 20 years, you know, like those kind of things. And so I had that kind of early affirmation. And then my background of working with talent for so long kind of led me to this place of, you know, I knew that having a partner that was, you know, um, extremely well known would be an amazing. Accelerator for the brand. And so I knew that I needed millions and millions of women to know that this brand had launched called Good American and this is what they do. But at the end of the day, that was never going to be enough. You know, Chloe can drive you to, you know, first purchase, yeah. but she's not going to let you come back again and, and again and again for a product that's you know expensive. Um, and so I was had to be like very, very clear that the product was better than anything else out there for a curvy body type, and I was Absolutely clear that I'd created a product that was better than anything else.
0: Yeah, well, thank you for sharing because, um, yeah, I, I think that's a really great story when it comes to kind of like it's not enough. Because you know how like people just want to work with influencers and they think that would change the game or they want to work with talent and think it'll change the game. But the fundamentals is you've got to have a great product or service.
1: You've got to have a great product. And I think that, you know, customers expect. So much now, right? And actually, what what talent are really great for? And we've all seen this in the last year with the way that you know Facebook has changed and digital marketing is becoming so incredibly expensive. You can't pay your way to a customer. Like it just doesn't. It just the fundamentals of business are never going to stack up if you've got to spend so much to acquire a customer. And so being able to use talent to go and get the message out there um, and accelerate the The message of the brand that's an incredible value add, but again, people have so much choice now and they want so much from their brands. And they also want not just for your product to fit and to be exceptional, but they want to make sure that they're aligned with you, that they're aligned with your values and how and what you're doing, and what you know the rest of the company stands for. And so, actually, I think that those things are becoming and are so much more important than just, you know, like, than just marketing.
0: Hey, guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business, and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I, who are actually in the trenches only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like they're building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast, From Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in the trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. So you've clearly got like a really great eye and and, and ear for consumer desire. Um, What tips do you have for early stage founders kind of, you know, trying to keep their finger on the pulse or, or coming up with an idea like for a great product?
1: I honestly, one of the best things that we did was to listen to our customers. And there are so many great ways to do that. You know, we're a brand that's really rooted in social media. And so when we ask a question, tens of thousands of women will come back and tell us if they want a dress with or without sleeves. Right. It's like it's just the way the brand has always interacted with its customers. So we do so many things, whether it be on social, uh, you know, um, post-purchase surveys, really big focus groups. Every time we create a new fit, we fit it on every single size. And so we bring our customers on our journey. Now with that, you know, it's like, again, you have to accept the good, the bad, the ugly. You're, you're also going to get a lot of um, intel. I know I'm the first person to know when a retailer doesn't have all the sizes in Good American because my customers will be like, well, I was in such and such in Minnesota and they didn't have a size 18. And I'm like, thank you for letting us know. <laughs> we'll go and make sure that they have that in future. Um, but you also need to be able to take the, the negative feedback. And I think the fact that we have taken every piece of you know listening and reacting to our customers and their feedback has been again a superpower for the brand because even when we didn't like what we were hearing we still listened and we took those you know that feedback back into the business to make different decisions and I do think that just having your ear open, looking at the reviews, being in the weeds, talking to customers, and and now more than ever when we don't have that in-person relationship with them in the traditional ways of retail, when it's direct-to-consumer, you have to figure out what is your way of interacting with your customer base with regularity, and then what is the way you take what they said back into the business to make decisions? And those two things have been... um, massively massively important for good american
0: yeah wow that's gold thank you for sharing so want to switch gears talk about skims um can you tell us kind of what was that journey like what was your involvement what was the process there
1: you know it's such an interesting one because i get asked this all the time and i wish someone would ask kim because i almost don't remember i i think that i you know just had a conversation with Chris about some a project that Chloe, that, that Kim wanted to do. Um, and if memory serves me rightly, you know, I just ended up in a meeting where Kim was talking to me about her vision. You know, she was like, this is what I want to do. And, you know, perhaps it was the success of Good American that made, you know, Kim and Chris want to have the conversation with myself and my husband, who's also uh, a founding partner in Skims. My role in Skims is really based around the product. You know, what we do is make shapewear and underwear in a fully inclusive size range and really importantly, in nine different skin shades. And so I believe that the last, you know, five years of building Good American and working in this space that's really focused around like fit and fabrication has led me to a place where... I happen to be very good at that for Skims. So my role is really that of chief products officer. I oversee the design team and merchandising and planning at Skims. And, you know, I love it because for me, you know, it's like I'm a product junkie. I like to be in the weeds with the product, creating new things, looking at innovations in fabric. And, you know, it honestly is like a dream job for me.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And can you talk us through kind of the challenges, any challenges in the early days and what did that look
1: like? Yeah, you know, there are always challenges and you don't get to make your mistakes in in private when you're in business with Kim Kardashian. And so, you know, there were some, uh, there were some things that we did, I guess, in the beginning. The most famous one is that the company was originally going to be named Kimono. And again, we listened to the audience. We heard that that wasn't accepted or respected and we made a quick pivot to rename the company to a way better name actually now in hindsight um i'm happy to say but you know i think that if i'm honest you know so much of my job is dealing with problems and with challenges right nobody comes to me and says well we're knocking it out of the park today you know sales are on fire we met our target it's only 10 a.m i mean i do get those texts but more often than not it's a challenge. It's a problem. It's, you know, this year has been the great supply chain issue. You know, it's like, I am very lucky to be in a position with both Skims and Good American where, um, you know, the, the love of the product and the consumer appetite for the product really outweighs what I'm able to put out in the market. And so there are all of those issues of how are you going to get ahead and you know how do you predict businesses that have treble digit growth like year over year that's that's very difficult because you don't know what next year looks like because the only thing I can guarantee is that it will look nothing like this year um, and so it's hard to predict. Um I just think that you know my my job is to be able to constantly make decisions and so I'm you know I like to stay really connected to the businesses That I'm involved with because I can only make those decisions if I really understand what's going on. And again, you know, like hire the best possible people to work in every part of the company.
0: I once spoke to a really successful founder that said, you know, you have to get it, you have to be right about 70% of the time. Um, So, you know, you've made some incredible decisions that have got you to where you are now. Uh, Do you have like anything that you could share around like a decision-making framework, how you go through this process of making the moves that you've made to get where you are today?
1: It's interesting, right? Because I do have this philosophy. I I think I'm pretty sure it was my husband who said it to me first, like make a decision and move on. I'm someone that can, you know, definitely over-procrastinate, um, and I think that when you're a CEO and you're making so many decisions a day, you're going to, you know, you're going to make good ones, you're going to make bad ones, you have to make them and move on, right, because to 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 over-procrastinate is to just freeze and, and die and miss opportunities. Um, I am definitely I think at the heart, if you if you have two different types of CEOs that are like a gut driven, you know, type person or a data driven, you know, information gathering person, I would say I'm I'm on the gut side of things. That's just how I've always operated. Um, And I have a lot of experience that's kind of led me to to be that way, because ultimately, you know, I can live with a decision that I made from the gut that goes wrong better than one (laughs) where I looked at all the data and processed it and still fucked it up. So I think that, um, I think that my decision making process is evolving all the time. And I definitely believe that having and surrounding yourself with other brilliant people and creating the conditions for everybody to contribute all the time, right? It's no good if you're kind of like an isolated CEO that, makes decisions kind of in a in a vacuum I don't do that I'm a person that brings people around the table and will talk something out and you know listen to the benefit of like everybody else's experience and I do that quite often I'm also someone that calls like I will call people I have a bunch of people that I speak to uh and not just like you know like competitors, uh, other CEOs that I'll be like, Hey, are you seeing this? Like, is this happening to you too? Or am I in a isolated incident right now? You know, and I, I do that all the time, nine times out of 10, people are really generous with their information and happy you phoned up. You know, it's like, I I've done that so many times and and it's, uh, you know, surprised me.
0: Yeah, that's cool. So let's talk about safely. Um, how did that start?
1: You know, that was honestly a reaction to what was happening in the world because I'm a mum of four children now um, and I had recently kind of rid my house of... All plastic, like just before the onset of COVID, I was like, There's no plastic in this house, we're going completely as reusable, sustainable, and you know, toxic free as we can in this house. And it was quite an undertaking, you know, you have, to, you have to do a lot of research. I worked with this consultant, I really, really thought about it because when you've got small kids, you know, you want the best for them, and um, then. Then COVID came and I was like, pass me the Lysol. (laughs) Give me me everything back that I'd got rid of. Um, And then, you know, maybe three or four months in, I was like, there has to be like a better alternative. It can't be that or that. I started looking around and I started doing a lot of research into like plant-based cleaning. And it just so happened that I knew somebody um, that had been at a, you know, a very well-known laundry detergent company and we started speaking and I was like what are the innovations in this space and where's the market going and you know are more people open to like a better version of what they are currently using and I think it's just one of those decisions that I don't even know if I thought about before you know I buy the same things as maybe my mum bought I don't know you know it's like I buy the things that just like jump off the aisles or whatever's on like Amazon on repeat, you know, it's just like not a choice for me. And so I just thought like more people, if they're given the choice for something that is plant-based and without toxins and is better for their whole family, like, would you be willing to trade up? And I think that's like any decision in product you know it's like are you willing like do most people are like want something better if they know something's better and so I just thought it'd be interesting to do something that was outside of my own comfort zone like being around fashion um and you know but apply the same thought process to it right I was like why can't marketing for cleaning products be really beautiful why can't we make gorgeous packaging in lovely colors and keep it simple and just tell people like what the deal is. And, you know, it turned out that you could. You could make really gorgeous smelling plant-based products that don't have any crap in them. And you could get them into some of like the, you know, the biggest retailers in the country. So that's that was the story of Safely. And it's been fantastic.
0: Yeah. Wow. There you go. That's really cool. And for anybody watching this that is looking to differentiate into a crowded space like you have, what was the best piece of advice you would give them?
1: I think the best piece of advice is really like know what you're doing it for. You know, I had a very specific thing in mind, which was really about my kids and then being in that moment of, you know, it's hard to think about now, but if you go back, what, to April, you know, not last year, the year before we were all in a complete panic. You know, I was, leaving my groceries outside for (laughs) half an hour and then spraying everything down. And, you know, I was like, this can't be good for me. And I often think that things that I've done really well, it's like a personal problem that I'm addressing and going... if I feel like this, there must be so many others. If I don't want to alter my jeans after I spent 150 bucks on them, there must be other girls that have a curvy body that are like, don't want to do that either. There must be a better way of, you know, looking at skin colors in underwear. And so I do think it's so much of it starts with like addressing things that, Bother you that you find you know you've got to create a solution for because you know at the end of the day, you've got to be passionate enough and sometimes crazy enough to go round and round and round to actually solve a problem. So it helps if it comes from something that you feel really you know linked to. Like, I'm not sure that I can just start phones that don't ring during meetings because I don't really care that much. You know, I'm just like, pick it up, put it down. (laughs) It's like, you know, it has to kind of come from somewhere. Um, And, you know, I I think that we're in a kind of time right now, especially post-COVID, where people want to do, you know, we want our jobs and how we spend our time to not just like align with our values and feel purposeful, but we want to feel like really proud of what we're doing. And we want to feel that we're using our time well, because we've all just had this huge reminder that. Time is really precious, right? That's like all we have. And so I think if you're able to put those things together and that you feel really great every day about how you're using your time, you're going to be a successful founder. You may not make a gazillion dollars, but you're going to get up every morning and your life will be full of purpose and you're going to do something you really enjoy. And hopefully it makes somebody else, you know, either a difference to their life or something enjoyable for other people. And that for me has to be the starting point of anything. If it brings you money and wealth and opportunity and, you know, all of that is really great too. But at the end of the day, we've all got to get up and get through the day. And I think that has to be what work is for.
0: Yeah, I agree. hundred and ten percent. So Let's talk about Shark Tank. Uh, How did you end up there? Uh, How did all that come about?
1: What a good question. Um, You know, it's really interesting because, first of all, you know, I was at dinner the other night and somebody said, what's your peak, what's your peak, what's the most unexpected thing that happened to you this year? I mean, Shark Tank has to be the most unexpected. And really because I never saw myself as like a TV person, like a girl that would go on TV, you know, that. that's why I have the most brilliant business partners in the world because they do that stuff <laughs> and I can be, you know, like in the office. Um, but I had, I, I think, a huge realisation when I come, I think when I moved to America, right, and I started thinking so much more about how much, you know, racial disparity that there is in this country and what kind of um like what what the the role was for corporate america in that and i think about that in my own business every single day um but i also kind of look and I know the statistics, right? It was only five years ago that I was trying to raise money for Good American. And I know how hard it is for black and brown women, especially, to be part of the funding conversation and even to be in those rooms where they could be considered. And I thought it was important to be a black woman that is, you know, uh, a self-made woman that could be on that show investing in other women. And that for me was the reason I was like, I have to do this because it's like a full circle moment. And I think it's really important for other people to watch that and be like, hey, if you make some money, it's really, really a good idea to kind of give that back and figure out ways that you can kind of, you know, help other people because there are so many good ideas that because they aren't in the right context and in the right rooms just never see the light of day it's not that the best ideas are always the ones that get funded and so Shark Tank was just a moment to go you know what can I get like a bunch of black and brown women on this show showing that they can be incredible entrepreneurs that they've got fantastic ideas and you can fund them and they can be successful um, and the answer was yes you can. <laughs> So that's why I did it. And I think it was a really, um, it was just, a, you know, a really fundamental moment in my life and something that I feel extremely proud of to be, you know, extremely proud to be part of because I kind of had a thought going into it of what I was going to do and I was able to do exactly that. Oh, that's
0: incredible.
1: And I'm
0: curious, like, what advice would you give to any? founders that are early stage looking to pitch on the show or looking to raise capital in general from investors?
1: You know I think that oftentimes people go too early you know it's like at the end of the day most investors want to see an ability for you to have bootstrapped something and be able to be you know, in a situation that is not necessarily just profitable, but positive, right? That there is a business case, that there is a path to profitability, that there is, you know, something there. And I think if you can't, you know, ideas that need, there's so few ideas that need huge injections of cash, right from the outset. Now, of course, there are a million exceptions to that and we've seen them. But for people that are coming on Shark Tank where the investments are relatively, you know, they're typically under a million dollars, you really should be able to show some kind of business case. And so for me it's really about not going too early. What can you do yourself? How can you actually bootstrap a business and get it to a place where an investor can see some kind of hope in the future of your business. And so um I think that, you know, it's, I've done it myself, you know, in the past without raising capital and I've started businesses where I've raised capital. And at the end of the day, they're two really, really different paths, but I would definitely think that the challenge of bootstrapping and doing something on your own, you learn so much more. You absolutely approach it and (laughs) allocate funds and do things in a different way. It doesn't matter what anyone says. Um, And so I I definitely think for, you know, for people that are just starting out, like trying to see how far you can get without having to call in any additional funds is a really important thing. It's a challenge for yourself and it's only going to mean that you can attract better, uh, better investors in the long run, I think.
0: I'm really curious. You've seen both sides of the table. Which do you prefer? That's
1: such a good question. Really depends. I mean, let's be honest when you're trying to do something on a global scale um, where you believe that there is, you know, a huge opportunity, it's fantastic to raise capital Um, going back five years, maybe I'd have thought about that totally differently. If, if I was in the same position I am now and I could have just, you know, put my own money into it. I wasn't, it wasn't a choice that I had back then. Who knows? We'll see in business number five <laughs> that's the truth of it right
0: <laughs> awesome well look conscious of your time we'll work towards wrapping up uh, a few last questions um before we finish up i wanted to talk about the 15 percent pledge so can you explain to this what this is and and why you got involved
1: yeah, absolutely. So the 15% Pledge is a nonprofit that was started by an incredible woman called Aurora James. And Aurora um after the tragic murder of George Floyd actually started the nonprofit by putting out a really simple Instagram post where she created a call to action for retailers to relook at how they're buying products. And the simple genesis of the entire organization is that if Black people make up 15% of the population of this country, then why shouldn't your buy equate to 15% from Black-owned businesses? And really what we're talking about here is, you know, the the state of economic disparity in this country. Um, And, you know, I think what's been so incredible is that so many Big retailers have jumped on this initiative. And again, going back to that conversation around diversity, why representation matters, why diversity in organisation matters. Actually, it you know, for businesses to understand, it makes you more successful. When you are able to have a broader addressable market, when you are able to, you know, talk to more people through the brands that you're acquiring, you're actually serving the customer better, you're able to service more customers. And therefore, that has, you know, an effect on your bottom line. And so what the 15% pledge does, in the most simple way possible, is gets organizations to look at the way they are buying and procuring, and to say, perhaps we should look at putting more of this into black owned businesses. And we know that that has an incredible effect, because if you are a black owned business, and you suddenly get a fantastic, you know, purchase order from Nordstrom, you are able to employ more people. And we know that black founders will employ black and brown people, they will educate their children, they will have a positive impact in their community. I think what's the most interesting thing is how quickly that organization has been able to be truly impactful. We're talking about $10 billion of opportunities through the pledge takers in just a year. And so you really are changing the economic makeup of the country at large by being able to do this. And the most simple way to see it is to go into any of those retailers. You know, when you go into Sephora, you're going to see a much broader range of businesses because they're able to start looking at the brands that they're bringing in through a different lens. And sometimes it really is just about um, showing, you know, these brands and these retailers the way, you know, they have a buying division. They have a number of people that procure products on their behalf and perhaps they only have a limited vision of the brands that they know and what they see and what they think they should be buying. So I think 15% Pledge has been an amazing organization just to help people wake up and understand what's out there and see what they might be leaving on the table. And I'm really, really proud to be the chairwoman of this organization because they're making real tangible change. And I think for so many Uh, people in business so many organizations so many brands everybody knows they have to do something but not everybody understands well what does that mean what should we do and so the 15 percent pledge gives you just a very very tangible way to shift your business to look at things differently and to start you know, broadening the horizons. And I think that a lot of organizations, again, and I talk about this so much, you know, it's like everybody made charters. Everybody said, you know, we know that we need to be better. We see and we hear the problems, but you have to action all of that, you know, and there's no point in creating a charter and it gets kind of filed away somewhere, And then nobody thinks about it anymore. And so the pledge gives an amazing opportunity for businesses to do something that's tangible, actionable, that's measurable and move forward. And it has an amazing effect on the business overall.
0: Yeah, wow. Well, thank you for sharing, Emma. Look, we could talk to you all day. (laughs) You've got a wealth of knowledge and experience and you've had such an incredible journey and career success. A couple last questions.
1: We'll move to the hot seat round. I love your questions. You have a very relaxing voice that I can listen to. So it's like, great. You're very calm. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Maybe it's it's an Australian thing. Not sure.
1: It is. I think it is an Australian thing. That's definitely it.
0: There you go. Um, So the first one, hot seat round, if you could give advice to Emma, one piece of advice 10 years ago, what would it be and why?
1: I would have moved on um, a little quicker from some of my early jobs. I stuck around out of loyalty and didn't always um, make the best decisions for myself. And I, actually usually tell people that work for me all the time. I'm like, your time here is probably up. You should move on. <laughs> you know, it's like two, three years, you know, you actually are going to need to go to another company to get the jump that you deserve and you need and whatever. Um, and I think that I would definitely advise myself to be perhaps less loyal and a little, a little more ruthless.
0: Awesome. Um, last question. You've had incredible success with talent-backed businesses. If there was one... Uh, celebrity to partner up with that you could choose, who would it be and why?
1: This is going to sound so ridiculous, but I didn't have a second choice to Chloe. She was my first choice. And I still sit here and I go, God, that was such a smart choice. I still think that um, the Kardashian family just have it. You know, it's like they are honest and they are unbelievably hardworking, and this is it's just is such a boring answer for you but I actually wouldn't there is no one I would rather be in business with and that's the honest it's the honest truth I don't sit here and you know I mean I could just like create a brand for Brad Pitt but it would be more self-serving than actually like me wanting to create a brand for Brad Pitt but maybe we should say that because it would be a more interesting answer oh it's all good well I'll ask you one last question then that's for like 16-year-old Emma crushing on Brad Pitt. That would be it. <laughs> okay. If you could have dinner with
0: one entrepreneur, dead or alive, who would it be and why?
1: You know what? I I probably, I thought you were going to ask me one celebrity, but maybe it is the same thing, actually. I might still go back to Oprah. And i tell you why. Because I think that one of the things that she's done so beautifully is like fuse this like unbelievable commercial instincts that she has with like a, the purpose of her life and like this idea of spirituality and the podcast and the book club and bringing the whole world with her and i think there's so few people that have like been able to touch people's life in like such a big way as her you know and so i probably would think about it would probably be oprah yeah I I think so because it's she's just she's unique in that sense of you know being able to you know just be so positive and such a you know a, a kind of beacon for so many people and make lots of money doing it <laughs>
0: Yeah, look, Oprah's Oprah's a really great one. Um,
1: yeah, I think she would be. It would have to be a woman, you know, because I think so much about the unique challenges that women have. And, you know, I'm so glad you didn't ask me, but everybody always asks me about how do you balance it? You know, how do you do everything? No one asks my husband that, you know. It's like when I did my Shark Tank press, you know, I did it with Mark Cuban and I was like why does no one ask Mark how he balances it all? You know, it's like such a ridiculous question. Um, and you know, I do think that women face a unique challenge in, in business, right. It's like, w- we talk so much about, you know, equality in the workplace and, uh, you know, uh, at all different levels, but especially, you know, at, at the higher level and on boards and in the C-suite and there's still, um, so much other stuff that women have to take the lead on in their life, like, you know, childcare, like running a household. Um, And there's just not enough emphasis on the reality of women's like total lives and total responsibilities. And I think that, you know, I always take it upon myself to just be really honest about what it takes to do my job and have four children. Well, I have to have a lot of help. I don't take my kids to school every single day and I don't make their packed lunches. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of things that you sacrifice in order to, you know, to do what I do every day. And I never want it to feel like, especially for my children that I'm making some big sacrifice because I, I'm often putting myself first. And I think for women, there's a lot of stigma attached to you saying that to so saying like, my career is really important to me, and I'm putting it first right now, mm-hmm. you know, and so and that's never something that men have to think about. And so I think that we ought to be speaking so much more about the unique challenges of women who actually are doing it, and how you have to be really, really honest about what that takes because I think for so long we've been feeding women this kind of bill that's like you can have it all it's like no you can't (laughs) you absolutely cannot you aren't the mom who's at the PTA meetings um while running you know like companies and you know coming home and you know cooking the dinner that's just not a reality and so I think that as women in business we owe it to all the other women that are coming beside us behind us to just be really honest about what it takes, because you're going to have to make sacrifices somewhere in your life. And I think it's just, um, high time that we are just, you know, kind of lifting the lid off of some of that and, and being open and honest about what it takes.
0: Yeah. Wow. Thank you for your openness, honesty. Really appreciate it. No
1: worries, my dear.
0: Awesome. Well, look, we will wrap there. Thank you so much for your time. This was an incredible interview and uh, congratulations on all your success. Look forward to seeing what you do next. And uh, yeah, really excited to share this interview
1: with our community. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Nathan. It's such a pleasure speaking to you.
0: Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview